Well, a politician awoke after an operation and found that the curtains in his hospital room were drawn. And so he asked the nurse, you know, why are my curtains closed? Is, you know, is it nighttime already? And, and the nurse responds, no, but there's a big fire across the street. And we didn't want you to think that your operation was unsuccessful. A few of you got that. A few of you probably didn't. <laughs> politician especially waking up to flames. But uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the second half of Luke chapter 16. And the reason I brought up that joke was because Jesus is going to be dealing a little bit with life after death. Uh, and it's going to be an important bit of information that we're going to look at. And if you noted from last week when we started Luke chapter 16, we noted that Jesus deals with two main parables in this chapter. And both of those parables are dealing with the right and wrong uses of earthly possessions, earthly wealth, the right and wrong motivation that we should have towards those things. And, and last week we looked at that first parable, which was directed specifically to Jesus' disciples, to those who believe in him. And he was focused on an unfaithful steward, a steward being someone who managed someone else's wealth. And, and after the parable was done, we noted three points that Jesus wanted us to take from that parable. Uh, the first was um, we are to use earthly riches and resources that God has given us with a focus on eternity to use the resources that we have in this life to reach people with the gospel, to reach people ultimately for eternity. The second point Jesus shared with us is that our faithfulness with temporal riches has a direct impact on eternal riches. What we do with the riches we have in this life will ultimately bring a benefit to the eternal riches we have in heaven. And the third point that Jesus shared with us is we can only have one master. You cannot serve God and earthly resources or money at the same time. Jesus says, if you try to do it, you're going to love and be devoted to one, speaking of money, and then you're going to reject and not love God. Well, Jesus shared this parable specifically to the disciples, but the scribes and the Pharisees, they're in the midst of that. Jesus is speaking loud enough. They hear what he has to say about the right and the wrong use of earthly riches, and now they're going to respond to that. And as they respond to that, Jesus is then going to respond to how they respond to him, and in doing so, he's going to share with us another parable. But the second parable is directed to the Pharisees. The first parable was directed to the disciples. And the focus ultimately, as we noted last week, wasn't on salvation. Those resources that, and, and blessings that we get in heaven, those aren't uh, salvation issues. So he's speaking of believers in Jesus using the resources in this life ultimately for eternity. But now he's going to focus on the Pharisees, on people who don't believe in him. And this parable will be dealing with the afterlife, it will be dealing with salvation, it will be dealing with some significant things of life after death. And so we left off last week with Jesus sharing this first parable. This morning we're going to pick up now and see how the Pharisees who are listening in respond to what Jesus had to say about the right use and the wrong use, the right motivation and the wrong motivation of earthly riches. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 16 says this, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided Jesus. So the Pharisees, they hear what Jesus has to say. They're listening in. They hear what he has to say about how you should use money, your motivation towards earthly riches. And they're listening to those things. And, and notice how we're told they respond. We're told they derided Jesus. Now this Greek word translated derided means to scoff at to sneer at, to turn your nose up, to ridicule, to deride. So the Pharisees hear what Jesus has to say about how to use your earthly resources, the motivation you should have towards it, your attitude towards it, and their response is to scoff at Jesus, to ridicule Jesus for making these statements about money and earthly resources. But you might ask, well, well, why did they respond like that? Why did they deride Jesus? Why did they scoff at him? Why did they ridicule him for making these statements? It seems like it was a really good thing to share about it. Well, Luke gives us an important reason why they're in verse 14. The reason they ridiculed Jesus, Luke tells us, is because they were lovers of money. You see, this was the issue. These guys love money. They lived for money. It was all about money to them. And so when Jesus says, that's not what life's about. 
That you shouldn't be someone who's spending all the money in this life on yourself. You should be focused on eternity, living for God, using your resources for God. They scoffed at that. They ridiculed that because that was the exact opposite of the way in which they focused on and saw and lived out this mindset towards money. It definitely went against what they were doing. Jesus basically hit too close to home. And so they respond to this accusation, this revealing of their sin in their own life with responding to Jesus by ridiculing him. You know, the Pharisees are a perfect example of what Jesus said at the end of his last parable. He says, you can't serve two masters. You're going to either love one and hate the other, or you're going to be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Well, here's the reality. These Pharisees are trying to do that. They're trying to serve money and God at the same time. And the result is they don't love God. They're not loyal to God. They are to money instead. Jesus revealed the sin in these Pharisees' lives, and instead of repenting, instead of changing, instead of listening to what Jesus had to say and searching their own heart and realizing, you know what, you're right, we need to change our mindset towards riches, we need to change how we live, they respond by ridicule. They respond by scoffing at what Jesus shares. I think there's a good lesson in there for us because, you know what, God often reveals sin in our own life. And there's basically two ways in which we can respond. The first is the way that God wants us to respond, and that is repentance. That we would see the sin that he reveals to us, we would repent and turn away from it. The second response is the opposite. It's a lack of repentance. Now, that could take all sorts of different forms. It could be scoffing at God. It could be ridiculing God for daring to say that's in your life. It could be completely trying to ignore the sin that's there. It could be making excuses for the sin. It could be passing the blame and saying that it's someone else who is responsible for this. But you know, at the end of the day, all those responses come back to the reality that you're not repenting. It doesn't matter what it looks like. At the end of the day, it's not repentance. It's not coming to the Lord, seeking to change and turn away from that sin. And I think an important question to ask ourselves is how do we respond when the Lord reveals sin in our life? Because we all sin and God loves us too much to not reveal that to us. Just like loving parents, we reveal to our kids the issues in their life that we want to see change. God does that for us. But how do we respond? Do we respond like the disciples without repentance, with kind of scoffing at God? Maybe we blame others. Maybe we make excuses. We do something that ultimately isn't what the Lord wants, and that's a response of repentance. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 31 and 32 gives us some great wisdom. It says this, The ear that hears the rebukes of life will, be, will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. If you want to be wise, if you want to get understanding, what this proverb is saying is you need to heed the rebukes that come in your life. You know, we don't like to be rebuked. It's probably the easiest person to be rebuked by is God, but sometimes he uses individuals to come into our life and to reveal sin, to rebuke us of things that we're doing. And none of us like that. None of us want to hear of the issues that we're struggling us. None of us want to have that light shined on us and say, here's a sin in your life that needs to change. But the reality is, how do we respond? This proverb is saying, you know what, when you listen, when you take heed to it, when you allow it to sink in and you actually repent of it, then you're wise and you gain understanding. But when you reject it, when you won't listen to that rebuke, when you won't take that on board, when you won't allow it to really convict you and allow you to change, then you're being foolish and you're not gaining understanding. And that's exactly where these Pharisees are at. They're being foolish. They're not gaining understanding. Jesus Christ is there before them. He's revealing to them just one of many sins in their life. And instead of accepting it and changing and repenting of it, they ridicule. Well, Jesus is going to respond to their ridicule. He's going to respond to their scoffing. Notice what he has to say to them in verses 15 through 17. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Jesus starts off by saying something very pointed. These guys are scoffing at him. They're deriding him. They're ridiculing him. 
And he has something very important to say. He says, you know what? You guys are those who try to justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You know, this kind of sums up the Pharisees as we've seen Jesus share, share, share things about them, calls them hypocrites over and over because what did they want to do? They wanted to justify themselves before people. They wanted people to think they were so righteous and so spiritual. And then outward appearance, people thought that. They looked at the Pharisees and they say, oh, look at these spiritual people. Look at these religious people. Look at these righteous people. But Jesus reveals something to them that's so important for us to understand as well. He says, you know what? God knows your heart. You might be fooling all the people here. You might be causing them to believe that you're these spiritual, righteous, godly people, but God sees your heart. And I think that's so important for us to understand because the heart is what we're really like. And oftentimes our heart and our outward actions don't go hand in hand. God would want it to. He wants us to be real. He wants us to be you know, transparent in that regard. But too often, what's going on in our heart is not what we portray outwardly. Because we want to be seen as better than we really are. We want to be seen as doing better. We want to be seen as more spiritual. And so often, what we display to others outwardly is really not what's going on inwardly. Inwardly, we're usually much worse off. So we can deceive people into thinking we're doing well. But the one we cannot deceive is God. And Jesus reveals that God sees your heart. He sees what's really going on. He sees what you really are. Don't think that you're deceiving him. You hit that for me. An important verse is 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is such an important truth. You see, the reality is we usually focus on the outward. And because we're focused on the outward, we're easily deceived into believing people are better than they are, to believing kind of the mask and the hypocrisy that people portray, because we don't see the heart. All we see is the outward. That's what we're focused on. But, but this reveals to us very clearly, that's not what God looks at. God sees the heart. God sees what we really are. And he's never deceived. We can never put on a show that's convinces him of something that's not true. Jesus goes on to say, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here's another important thing for us to understand that God has a different value system than the world does. What this world says is highly esteemed for the most part, is very opposite of what God says is highly esteemed. What this world values, what this world thinks is great, you know, when you look at that and you compare it to what God says in his word, they, they usually never go hand in hand. It's always usually a very big contrast from what the world esteems to what God esteems. The Pharisees were esteemed by people because of their wealth, because of their outward spiritual display, but they were an abomination in the sight of God because he saw their hearts. They esteem something that was worldly, but God doesn't esteem those things, and he didn't esteem them because of that. God's standard and what he esteems are definitely very different than the world's, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is it that we value? What is it that we're pursuing? Are we pursuing what this world esteems and values, or are we pursuing what God esteems and values? And it's difficult for us because we're constantly bombarded, especially in our social media day and age, with the world's view of what is valuable, with the world's view of what is esteemed. And they constantly tell us their view all over and over and over again. And it's hard for us to kind of resist that and not allow it to stick with us. Instead, we need to say, you know what, well, what does God esteem? What does God value? And if that goes in the face of what the world esteems and value, I'm okay with that. And I'm going to stick with what God esteems and what God values. Because when I start valuing and esteeming what the world wants, ultimately the way in which I live is something that is not what God wants. Now Jesus is going to reveal some important things about the law in verses 16 and 17. He says this, The law and the prophets run to John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Jesus says the law and the prophets, speaking of the whole Old Testament, were until John. The John he's referring to is John the Baptist, ultimately the final prophet right before Jesus, the one who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. You see, the law revealed 
that people need the Messiah to save them. It showed that they couldn't meet God's perfect standard. The sacrificial system showed that they needed a sacrifice to pay for their sins, ultimately pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus. The prophets prophesied 315 different prophecies concerning the Messiah. Things like how he would be born, how he would live, how he would die. So the law and the prophets were constantly pointing to Jesus, pointing to the Messiah. And John the Baptist then came on the scene to prepare the way, to prepare people for Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, get ready, for the Messiah is here. So the law and the prophets were unto John because they pointed to the Messiah. John comes on the scene to prepare for the Messiah. And then the Messiah comes on the scene, Jesus himself. And he goes out and he starts preaching the kingdom of God. And there's people who press into it. Those who believe in Jesus. Those who accept that he is the Messiah. Accept who he is. But there's one group that does not press into it. There's one group that does not respond to it. And that is the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They reject Jesus as their Messiah. And so the law and the prophets pointed to the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come. And Jesus says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. You see, the the law cannot fail. Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. The law is God's perfect standard, which none of us can do, but Jesus did. Jesus lived that perfect life. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or prophets. I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. I came to live it out because you couldn't. I came to keep it because you couldn't. He fulfilled the perfect standard that God had established so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Now, the next thing that Jesus throws in here seems very odd. It seems like, well, wait a second, this doesn't fit at all with what you're talking about. You're dealing with the right way and the wrong way to use earthly riches. You're talking about all this stuff. And now he throws in something that seems to be out of place. Notice what he says in verse 18. Whoever divorces wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this comment about divorce definitely seems odd, but what most commentators believe is when Jesus made this previous statement that the law will never fail, he was focusing on two things. The first thing was that he was going to fulfill it. He didn't come to destroy it. It's not going to fail because he came to fulfill it and complete it. But the second thing he was focusing on was the fact that the Pharisees were twisting and changing the law to be something that God never intended. We've seen this often in Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees, but the law that he normally brings up is the Sabbath law because that's the one that they gave him the most difficulty with. And we noted that they added to the Sabbath law and they twisted the Sabbath law and they made the Sabbath law something that God never intended it to be. And so Jesus would use the Sabbath law as an example to show them, hey, you have taken God's law and you've added to it. You've misrepresented it. You've twisted it. You've made it something that it never was meant to be. And most commentators believe that now he's just changing gears and he's using a different law to reveal ultimately the same points. And he uses his law concerning divorce. And what you need to understand at that time is the scribes and Pharisees were teaching at the times of Jesus that ultimately, first of all, understand women didn't have the privilege of divorcing men as they do in our society today. They couldn't do it. Only a man, a husband, could divorce his wife. So a wife was just stuck no matter what. Now, They were teaching men that you could pretty much divorce your wife for anything. If she burnt your food, you didn't like her cooking, get rid of her. If you found another woman who was more beautiful than you thought than your wife, you know what? Go ahead. You can marry this woman. Get rid of her. I mean, it was very much of a, you know, a chauvinistic man dominated. Hey, you know what? Just do whatever you want when it comes to your wife. If you want to get a new one, you want to get a new model type of mindset, you're fine. Just divorce her. And they would say, you know what? It's okay under the law. It's okay to do that. Now, obviously, when you read uh, what Jesus says about the law concerning divorce, that's not what he was talking about at all. You don't have this right to do whatever you want. But yet, that is what they were teaching. And so Jesus bringing up this reality again, as he's been before, you know what, you guys love to twist the law. I came to fulfill it. You guys want to be seen as these great spiritual people who are keeping it, but you're not keeping it. Actually, you continue to trust it like you do with the Sabbath law, like you do with the divorce law. And so that's what most commentators believe, that Jesus is kind of throwing that in there in the midst of all this, just to kind of point him, uh, point out the reality of how they continue to twist the law. So Jesus has these Pharisees ridicule him. 
as he speaks about the right and wrong ways to use riches. And his response to them is saying, you know what, you're not fooling anybody. God sees where you're at. He knows where you are spiritually. He sees your heart. He knows that you twist and break his laws. And you might be highly esteemed among people, but you know what? You're an abomination to God. Well, now Jesus is going to continue his rebuke. He's already said some pretty strong things, but he's going to move into a parable and he's going to help them see there is an eternal consequence for making lifestyle choices of money being your God, riches being your God, and ultimately rejecting God himself. There's a consequence for all eternity. Notice what he says here in this parable. It's a very interesting parable, starting in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gates, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. In this parable, we're told about two people, two places, and two prayers. And I think there's something important to note about all of them. So let's start with the two people. The two people in this parable are a rich man and a poor man. First, we're told some things about the rich man, that he was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. Now, purple and fine linen back in that day were something that was very costly, something that only the wealthy wore. And so Jesus, just in describing this man's apparel, describes that he was very wealthy. But also he tells us that he fared sumptuously every day. Now, in that culture, maybe once or twice a year at a big feast would you fare sumptuously, eat like that. But this guy was so wealthy that he got to eat like that every single day. And so Jesus is revealing this man was very wealthy and that he spent that wealth on himself. Second, we're told some things about the poor man. We're actually given this poor man's name. His name is Lazarus, and he was a beggar. And he was full of sores, and he laid at the rich man's gate. And the reason he chose this place to lay is because he hoped to get some scraps from the rich man's table that he could eat and fill his belly with. And we're told that the dogs came and licked his sores. And so we have two real contrasts, this wealthy man with all these wonderful clothes, with this great food, probably wonderful house. And then we have this poor man who begs, hoping to get the scraps from his table with all these sores over his body that these dogs come and lick. So those are the two people in this parable, which brings us to the two places. Jesus tells us that both the rich man and the poor man die. It's interesting, you know, death is the ultimate equalizer. Everybody dies, no matter whether you're rich or poor, no matter how much money you have, you cannot buy eternal life. You're going to die. Both these men die. And now the question is, what happens? Where do they go? Well, they go to two different places. The poor man goes to a wonderful place called Abraham's bosom. And the rich man goes to a horrible place of torment called Hades. Now, before we look at these two places in more detail and what they're all about, I want to make something very clear. The rich man did not go to this horrible place because he was rich. And the poor man did not go to this great place because he was poor. This parable is not saying if you're rich, you'll go to hell. And if you're poor, you'll go to heaven. Some people have read that and concluded that. But that is definitely not what Jesus is teaching here. As we noted last week, having riches 
in itself isn't bad. It isn't sinful. It's your mindset towards riches. It's how you use those riches that either are good or are bad. When you take your riches and you have a mindset that I'm using this for the Lord and you do use it for God, riches are a wonderful thing that you use for God's glory that ultimately give you eternal rewards as we saw last week. But if you live for riches, if it's all about I just want to accumulate more and more and I spend them all on me, well, yes, then riches become something sinful, something difficult. But it's not the riches in themselves. It's you, how you choose to view them and how you choose to use them that ultimately makes them either good or bad. Also notice that the poor man went to Abraham's bosom. Now, if you know anything about Abraham, you know that he was extremely wealthy. And so if riches were the thing that keeps you out of heaven, obviously Abraham wouldn't be there. Um, But it's not about having money or earthly riches that sends you to hell. Um, It's about a rejection of Jesus. You go to heaven by accepting Jesus. You go to hell by rejecting Jesus. So as we look at this parable, remember who it's being directed to. It's specifically being directed to the Pharisees who were told they were lovers of money. And so Jesus is making this specific thing. He actually chooses a huge contract, a real rich man who most of them were. And then he contrasts it with a really poor man just to make the contrast more bold and clear. But within that, some people have concluded, well, so rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. No, that's not the point. The Pharisees didn't have a relationship with God. They rejected God. And one of the reasons was because they made money their God. It's because they rejected God that they're going to hell, and it's because you accept God that you go to heaven. So in response to all this, Jesus tells this parable about a rich man who was just like the Pharisees, a man who loved money, a man who made money his master, a man who did not have a relationship with God. And to bring the point home even more, he takes the opposite type of person, a poor beggar, as someone who did have a true relationship with God. So the reason these two men end up where they are is ultimately because of a rejection of God and an acceptance of God. So as we have that in our mind, now let's look at these two places that we're told these different individuals go. Well, we're told the poor man, whose name is Lazarus, went to a place called Abraham's bosom. Now you might be thinking, well, well, why didn't he go to heaven? Why did he go to Abraham's bosom? And what is Abraham's bosom? What, What is being referred to here? Well, Abraham's bosom was a place where everyone who had faith in God before Jesus died on the cross went. So you think you have Jesus' death on the cross, and then everything before that, all the Old Testament saints, everybody in the Old Testament who believed in God, where did they go when they die? Abraham's bosom. Why? Why didn't they go straight to the throne of God? Why didn't they go straight to heaven? Well, very simply, God is just and holy, cannot have sin in his presence. The only reason that we can have uh, being God's presence is because Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. And until Jesus paid for the sin of all those Old Testament saints, they couldn't go into that place. They couldn't go into heaven. So they're kind of in this holding place waiting for Jesus to pay for their sins. Now Abraham's bosom is no more needed. Now we are straight from death into the presence of God because Jesus has already dealt with our sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, We are confident, yes, rather well-pleased, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So they're saying, hey, you know, when you die as a believer in Jesus Christ, you go straight to be with him, straight to heaven. There's no Abraham's bosom anymore because Christ has paid for our sin. That was a holding place for people who were waiting for Christ to die on the cross for their sin. But it was a great holding place. As we're going to see in this parable, it was a, a good place. It kind of, you know, depicted more of where they're heading. It was a, a lovely place. It wasn't a torment. It wasn't bad, unlike the other place that we're going to look at. So Abraham's bosom is this wonderful holding place for all those who had faith in God before Jesus came and died on the cross. And this is a place Jesus tells us this poor man Lazarus goes to. But the rich man, he went to a different place. He didn't have a relationship with God, and he goes to a place called Hades. Now, once again, you might be thinking, well, why didn't he go to hell? What's the difference between Hades and hell? Well, kind of similar to Abraham's bosom. Hades is also a holding place, but unlike Abraham's bosom, it's a horrible place, a place of torment, a place that we're going to see from the description here that is very similar to what hell will be like. You see, people who were held in Abraham's bosom were released to go into heaven when Jesus died on the cross for their sins. But those people were people who believed in the coming Messiah, believed in God. But there were plenty of people from the Old Testament who didn't. Plenty of people all the way up to the cross who didn't. And guess where they went to? 
they went to the other holding place, Hades. And you know what? They're still there. When Jesus died on the cross, those in Abraham's bosom were released to go to heaven. But yet hell, people haven't been judged ultimately. The Bible reveals when that judgment is going to take place. And so those who have rejected Christ right now are in this place that we're referring to here as Hades, this holding place that's ultimately going to be a place where they're now transferred from there into an eternity in hell. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, speaking of Jesus, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead and those who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone found not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What Revelation is speaking of here is the future. Jesus is going to return his second coming. Then he's going to dwell on this earth, rule and reign for a thousand years. And then after that, we're told of this great white throne judgment, the time where God is now going to judge the world. And there's two groups. There's the group that's names written in the Lamb's book of life, where they're those who have placed their faith in Jesus, and they get to go to heaven. Jesus says, you know what? I have books and books and books of all the sin that you have done, but you know what? Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. You have been forgiven of those things because you've accepted Jesus Christ, so I'm not going to judge you for that. You get to go to heaven. For everyone else, he opens up those books, and he judges them. And notice it says, death and Hades give up their dead. So those people who have been waiting ultimately for this final judgment are now going to be delivered in front of Jesus and he is going to judge them and we're told that he sends them to the lake of fire, which is another reference to hell. So Hades is a holding place for people who died not believing in Jesus and they're there until the final judgment when that will take place as we see here in Revelation. So we have looked at two people in this parable, the rich man and Lazarus. We looked at two places, Abraham's bosom and Hades. And now we're going to look at two prayers or, or two requests that this rich man has while he's in this horrible place. And these two prayers and the response given to them are going to help us understand some important things about how things work once you die. Verse chapter 16, verse 23 through 26. Notice what's said. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is speaking of the rich man. And saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those pass from there, from there pass to us. As this rich man is being tormented in Hades, he, he sees Lazarus, he sees Abraham in Abraham's bosom, and he cries out to Abraham, he says, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice here Jesus reveals one of the causes of torments there in Hades is a flame. Revelation refers to hell as a lake of fire. Jesus also speaking of hell in Mark chapter 9 verse 48 says, In hell the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Something important for us to understand, the Bible makes very clear hell's a real place. It's a horrible place. It's a place that people who reject Christ are going to be sent to. And you know the person who spoke about hell more than anyone else was? Jesus. And I find that interesting because there are many people in the church world today, over the centuries and today, who have a problem with hell. 
They have a problem with its existence. And I understand a lot of the issues that people have with hell. Is it's a sobering place. It's when you think about it and you think about the consequence of eternity being in this. I understand the issue. But the problem is these people, because they have an issue with hell, have said, you know what? It doesn't exist. That's something that the Bible refers to that's not really accurate. There's no real such thing as hell. Don't worry about it. It's not a real place. It's kind of a metaphorical thing that Jesus is talking about. But, you know, hell doesn't really exist. Now, in doing so... The first person that they're saying is a liar is Jesus himself because he spoke about hell a lot and described it in detail. But they're also saying that the Bible is not trustworthy because you know what? What it says there about hell is not something that you can trust. Well, if we can't trust what it says about hell, why can we trust anything that it says? You know what? Just because you don't like something the Bible talks about, it doesn't mean you get to dismiss it. A lot of people like to pick and choose. Oh, I like when Jesus says, love your enemies or love your neighbor as yourself, and, and we're going to adopt that, but hell no, we're going to get rid of that. And oh, this sin, I do that one, so we're not going to, we're going to say that one's not really bad. And, you know, we, we like to pick and choose oftentimes. People approach the Bible that way of, you know, we'll take this and we won't take that, and it's kind of the smorgasbord of things that they get to choose. Well, it doesn't work that way. In doing that, you completely undermine the Bible. And those who are in leadership in churches who do that, they need to understand that they're completely undermining the Bible, its authority, its power, because if I can pick and choose what I want to believe and what I don't, then the Bible has lost all its authority. It's also important to understand the Bible makes very clear what hell is going to be like, because there are many people today who are very clueless of that reality. I'm sure that you've talked with people who think, you know what, hell is just going to be a great place where I party with all my sinful friends. I've come across so many people with that mindset of hell of they're actually looking forward to it. Oh, man, I can't wait. You know, Satan and me and my friends, we're going to go party and do drugs and do all this stuff for all eternity. It's going to be so great. They have this mindset of heaven is going to be a bunch of fat little babies with harps, you know, floating around. And hell is going to be, you know, this place where everybody parties. And it's, you know, both of them are, are completely, you know, unbiblical concepts of, you know, we're not going to have harps floating on clouds in heaven. And hell's not going to be a party. Hell's not going to be enjoyable. Mark Twain said, I'll take heaven for the climate and hell for society. But sadly, those people are mistaken. There's nothing in hell that's going to be nice. Nothing in hell that people are going to like. Nothing in hell that's enjoyable. Hell is a place of torture and torment. I think one of Satan's biggest deceptions is convincing people that hell is not a place to fear. And so many people don't have any type of fear, any type of, you know what, I don't want to go there. Oh, yeah, hell, whatever. Either they don't believe it exists, or if they do believe it exists, they don't think it's that big of a deal. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his writings of walking through a cemetery and noticing a particular grave marker that read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Lewis says he wanted to add, Oh, how he wishes that were so. That atheist who didn't believe there was a God and probably thought, you know what, when I get in my suit and get put in the ground, I'm all dressed up and nowhere to go. I'm just going to be here for all eternity in the ground. There's nothing. It's nothing after this life because there's no God. And Lewis says, oh, yes, once he died and he met the judge of all heaven and earth and understood that he was going to hell, oh, he wished that there was nothing after this life. Notice the rich man is in torment and he asked for just a drip of water to cool his tongue. But Abraham's response to him reveals some important things. Verse 26 and 25, we'll read again. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Something very important here that Abraham brings up, the first is not as significant, I think, as the second, but the first, he kind of shows, hey, you know what, when you were in this life, you had all these wonderful blessings, and Lazarus had all these horrible, evil things happening to them, to him, but something important to realize, as Christians, this is as bad as it gets. You know, you might have a lot of persecution, you might have a lot of hardship, you might have a lot of difficulty, this life might pretty much just stink. You know, as people say, hell on earth, maybe it is that. For you, that's all it's ever going to be. That's the closest to hell you're ever going to get because as Christians, this life is as bad as it ever is going to get because after we die, we go to eternity with God in heaven where there's no more sadness, there's no more tears, there's no more suffering. But the sad reality, and you look at this parable here, the rich man and all that he had in this life, and he was blessed and he had the things that most people want, but that this life is the best it was ever going to be for him. And all eternity now, is going to be a place where he suffers, a place 
where he is in eternal torments. But something else that Abraham reveals and I think is more significant, he says, you know what, there's a great gulf fixed between Hades and Abraham's bosom. We can also picture that reality between hell and heaven. It's impossible for anyone from Abraham's bosom to go to Hades, and it's impossible for anyone in Hades to go to Abraham's bosom. Because notice the the rich man is saying, please send Lazarus from there to me that he might dip his finger in in water and put it in my tongue because I'm in torment in this uh, flame. And Abraham says, can't do it. Even if I wanted to send Lazarus to you, I can't because no one from here can go to you and no one for you can come over here. Abraham's response to this rich man's request tells us something very important. There are no second chances after you die. In this life and in this life alone, you have an opportunity to accept Christ. If someone dies and they have not accepted Christ, the Bible is very clear. Once they die, their time is done. Their opportunity is done. They had this life and this life alone to accept Christ. If they chose to reject him and then they die, there's no second chance in the afterlife. Their destiny and eternal destination is sealed. They will spend eternity in hell. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. We noted the judgment there in Revelation. If you believe in Jesus, guess what? You're going to escape that judgment that you deserve, but if you do not, you will stand before him. And there's no chance after you die to say, well, well, let me make up for it. Let me place my faith in Jesus now. I believe you. I see you on the throne. Okay, I trust in you. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. When you die, when I die, we'll stand before God in judgment. But fortunately for us, if we accepted Christ, we'll go to eternity in heaven. And for those, sadly, who reject him, we'll spend eternity in hell. Now, I think this truth is so important to understand because there are many unbiblical teachings concerning hell. As I already noted, there are many people who just try to say it doesn't exist. There is no such thing as hell. Atheists don't believe in God. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They say, you know what, you just die and that's it. But there's a a teaching within, you know, the church world, mainly by the Catholics and and some um, other church denominations as well. But it's the doctrine called purgatory. Purgatory is a basically a place where you get a second chance after you die. You go to this holding place called purgatory, and as you're there, you get the opportunity to work your way out, ultimately work your way to heaven. So you know what? You're in this life. You just live for yourself. You don't accept Christ. You do whatever you want. You die. Don't worry. You get a second chance. You're in purgatory. And now you can work your way, or people in this life can pray for you, and and ultimately you can get out. Well, you know, it sounds nice. And sadly, when you read church history, you realize the Catholic Church ultimately did this to gain lots of money because your loved one dies and you think, whoa, they're going to hell. They're a horrible person. You can say, oh, no, you can give to the church lots of money and you can come and pray and it will guarantee that they'll go to heaven. Oh, really? Well, how much do I need to give? Well, you know, how much do you got? Um, But the sad reality is that's what it was used to do, ultimately, to get these indulgences and things to cause money, people to pay money to get their loved ones into heaven. Sadly, there's no biblical truth to that. I mean, it might feel nice of, hey, I could pay someone's way to heaven. Well, we can't pay our way to heaven. There's nothing we can do to get to heaven except accept Christ. And when these people die, their, seat, their, their fate is sealed. The doctrine of purgatory isn't anywhere in Scripture. Actually, it completely goes against what Scripture teaches, and it undermines the gospel. Hey, why do I need to believe in Jesus if after I die, I can do stuff that gets me to heaven? What's the point of him dying on the cross? It completely undermines what he did as the only way to heaven. When you and I die, there's no second chances. It's only in this life that we have an opportunity to accept or reject Jesus. And I think the reality of that, maybe we think, whew, I'm so glad I've done that. But it should spur us on. I think that reality, I remember that really finally sinking into me and thinking, wow, there are so many people that I love and know that if they die today, there's no second chances. They're going to hell. And so that should spur me on to say, you know what? I want to be more proactive in getting the gospel to them. I want to be more driven and recognize there are people that I love that sometimes I just want to procrastinate and put it off. Well, maybe I'll share with them next week, next month, next year. But who knows if they have next week, next month, next year. And if they die, there's no more opportunities. So the rich man's first prayer request is to have Lazarus bring him some water. But Abraham says that's impossible because there's this gulf 
keeping us from going to one another. You can't do it. You can't go from one to the other. Well, now he has another request. And this is another one that's very interesting. And Jesus, remember, directing this to the Pharisees. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So the rich man's first request is, bring Lazarus over here. Let him dip my tongue with some water. I'm in torment. Can't do it. No one can come from here to there. All right, fine. If you can't go from Abraham's bosom to this place, send Lazarus, not here, send him back to earth. Help him rise from the dead because I want him to go to my father's house. I have five brothers and apparently they all live like me. None of them believe in God. They need to repent. I realize I needed to repent. It's too late, but it's not too late for them. Send Lazarus to go tell them they need to repent of their sin and get right with God. Notice what Abraham says. Hey, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Speaking of, they have the Old Testament. Let them hear what the word of God has to say. Oh, no, 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 no. They're not going to listen to the word of God, but they will listen. If Lazarus comes back from the dead, if someone comes back from the dead, surely they would repent over that. But he says, you know what? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Very interesting. Jesus brings this up. Ultimately, you know what? If they're going to reject what the word of God says, they're not going to accept any miraculous sign, even one as amazing as someone being risen from the dead. Now, remember, this is being directed to the Pharisees who had the Old Testament. They were meant to be scholars in it. They should have known that it spoke of Jesus so clearly, the Messiah. They should have been ready for him. They should have recognized him. They should have accepted him. So they had the word of God and they kept rejecting it. And in this parable, oh no, but if someone rose from the dead, then then they would accept him. No, they wouldn't. And I find that interesting because Jesus names this man. And some people actually think that this is more of a story than a parable because he names this man. But notice what he gives the man a name. Lazarus. You know what's going to happen in a couple weeks from this conversation? A man named Lazarus is going to die, someone that Jesus loved. And Jesus is going to go and he's going to raise him from the dead. You know how these religious leaders are going to respond? They want to kill Lazarus. Why? Because all sorts of people start to believe in Jesus. I mean, they've seen a lot of miracles, but they haven't seen this miracle. And all of a sudden they see Jesus has the power to rise people from the dead. Only the Messiah would have that power. And so all these people are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they say, we need to kill Lazarus. We need to get, he's a walking billboard for Jesus. Look at this guy who is dead and now alive. And so it doesn't cause them to say, oh my goodness, we've been so wrong. Lazarus is risen. We should accept Jesus. And just like this parable, even if someone rises from the dead, you won't accept him. But even more than Lazarus, Just a little bit after that, Jesus himself is going to be killed by these religious leaders and he's going to rise from the dead. And his resurrection also does not cause them to get right with God. And I think that's interesting because I grew up in a church that was very much focused on signs and wonders. And people would just think, you know, if someone just sees something miraculous, surely then they'll accept Christ. But the reality is if people are going to reject the way in which God says they need to come to the Lord through the word of God, then oftentimes the miraculous aren't things that actually draw people to God. Romans chapter 9, or chapter 10, sorry, verse 9 and 10, tells us what's necessary to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me god's word clearly reveals there's only one way to heaven that's through jesus you must confess with your mouth that he is lord believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead then you'll be saved now in our culture people don't like that you guys are so narrow-minded as christians you only believe there's one way to heaven one way to god i mean there's multiple ways there's multiple faiths there's multiple ways to heaven no there's not Bible says there's only one. Yes, we are narrow-minded because God says there's only a narrow way. And Jesus himself says, wide is the gates that people go that enters destruction. Narrow is the gates to eternal life. 
It's through Jesus and Jesus alone that people will be forgiven of their sins. That when they stand before him on judgment day, that's the only reason he's going to say, you know what? Your name's in the Lamb Book of Life. It's there because you believed in me. You know what? Your sins are dealt with. Oh, no, no, but, but I believed in this, or I believed in that way, or I did all these good works. Surely you're going to let me in. No, I never knew you. You're going to have to pay for your own sin. Unfortunately, there are many people today who don't want to accept what God has clearly revealed as the only way to heaven, and so they come up with their own concept of how to get to heaven. I think one of the most damaging one is this view in the world that is kind of growing in the church world called universalism. Universalism is a belief that everyone will be saved and go to heaven regardless if they believe in Jesus or not. And the thing that everyone in universalism kind of comes back to is, well, God is a God of love. And he's such a God of love that surely he's not going to send anyone to hell. A few years ago, a very popular book in the Christian world, sadly a very popular book, called Love Wins, written by a guy named uh, Rob Bell. And ultimately, the, the premise of this book is that no one's going to hell. Why? Love wins. God is a God of love, and therefore it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you accept Christ, reject Christ. It doesn't have, matter how you live your life. At the end of the day, when you stand before God, love wins. It's all about love. God's a God of love, and so therefore everyone who loves him, or he, he loves everyone, and so therefore they're all going to go to heaven. Well, here's the thing that these people miss. And I can understand when you kind of come to that concept of you think that's all that God is. God's just love. Nothing else. He's just this great big God of love. And, and oh, well, if all he is is love, then surely it doesn't really matter what I've done. He loves me and he's going to let me in. But what they don't understand, and the Bible's very clear if you look at the nature of God, he's much more than just a God of love. He's also a God of justice. He's perfectly just. And he's a God of holiness. He's perfectly holy. And because he's holy... He cannot allow sin in his presence. He cannot allow us, even if he wanted to. I love you so much, but you know what? I can't allow you to come in my presence because I'm perfectly holy and you are not. You are sinful, and so I cannot allow your sinfulness to come into my presence. And you know what? I'm also perfectly just. And so I can't allow your sin to go unpunished because that wouldn't be justice. But you know what? His love is seen in the fact that he sent his only son to take the punishment for our sin. The punishment that we deserve, the punishment that ultimately sends us to hell, he sent Jesus to take that on himself so that his holiness and his justice could still remain and that we could be in his presence. You know what? You can be in my presence now because you accepted Jesus and Jesus dealt with your sin, so now I see you justified just as if you never sinned. You're righteous in my eyes. Now you can be in my presence because Jesus has made you righteous. And you know what? I'm still just. Because someone paid the punishment for your sin. It just wasn't you. Jesus took the punishment. So I'm still just because I punished your sin, but yet you didn't have to deal and take that punishment because Jesus did it. I think the thing that we need to understand and communicate to people, and I think sadly when people think about hell and how could a loving God send people to hell, the bottom line is God has done everything possible to make it so that people don't go to hell. He said, you know what? Here is the get out clause. You don't want to go to hell. Wonderful. I've done everything to make it so you don't have to. I sent Christ. All you need to do is accept what he's done for you. Accept the punishment he took on your behalf, and then you don't have to pay that punishment. But there's a choice. You're going to stand before God one day, and you can stand before God and say, you know what? I've accepted Jesus. I've accepted the punishment he's taken on my behalf, and so therefore, I don't have to get punished because I accepted that Jesus did it, or I can reject that. And God says, you know what, if you reject that, that's fine. But the reality is now you have to pay the punishment of your sin yourself. Because it has to be paid for. It's either going to be paid for by you or it's going to be paid for by Jesus. But I'm just, and so somebody's going to have to pay. I've made it possible that you don't have to pay, but I'm not going to force you to accept that. You have to accept Christ, which enables you to say, you know what, okay, I accept the punishment Jesus paid, and therefore I don't have to. But for those who reject Christ, ultimately they're saying, I am choosing to now pay the punishment for my sin. And what the Bible says that punishment ultimately is, is eternity in hell. And so it's not, oh, how can a loving God send people to hell? A loving God has made it possible for no one to go to hell, but it's us who make the choice to reject what God has done. And God doesn't force that upon us. He doesn't say, well, I'm making you come to heaven. I'm making you come here. No, you don't want to be with me? Fine. You want to reject me? Fine. But just understand the choice that you're making. When you reject me, it's a rejection of not just me, of all that I've done for you. 
And so then now you have to pay that punishment yourself. And so ultimately, people are choosing to go to hell. They're choosing to pay the punishment themselves. Now, most people don't see it that way because most people don't understand it because the ones who have the good news of the gospel, the ones who know what the Word of God says, are Christians. And we're the ones who are meant to go out and tell people that. But Satan's out there saying, oh, don't fear hell. For some, he's saying it doesn't even exist. To others, he's saying it's a great party. And so they're thinking, oh, what's the big deal? We're the ones who need to come in there and help them see hell is a real place. And you deserve it because of your sin. And there's only one way to escape it, and that's to accept what Christ has done. And if we don't get that message out, then yeah, a lot of people are going to stay in ignorance. And when they die, unfortunately, Satan has been successful because there's no second chances. So God made the way possible. But sadly, too many people reject it. This is why it's important for us to get the gospel out. This is why it's important for us to pray for people to be open because we can share the truth and they're hard. I'm sure you've come across people where you share the gospel with them and they don't want to hear any of it. They don't care. They're totally hardened to it. And that's where we need to pray that the Lord would soften them and help them to be open to what we have to share to them. And I think it's important for us to understand as well that time is now. We love to procrastinate in life. We're all guilty of it in all sorts of different areas. But the worst area to procrastinate is the area of the gospel because we don't know how much longer our loved ones have or our friends have or our neighbors have or our coworkers have. And there is no second chances. So this is definitely a sobering passage, but I think a very challenging passage to recognize, you know what? There's life after death. The concept that, oh, only those who go to heaven live for eternity. That's not true. We all live for eternity. The question is just what state of eternity are we going to be in? Are we going to be in that wonderful state with God in heaven, or are we going to be in that horrible state without him in hell? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that you love us enough that you sent your son to die for our sins, that you love us enough that you paid the price for our sins, that you love us enough that you did everything possible so that we wouldn't have to go to this horrible place called hell. God, we're grateful that you moved in our heart. We're grateful that you revealed to us who you are and what you've done and and drew us to that place that we would come to accept you. But as Romans tells us, Lord, how are they going to hear unless one goes out and preaches to them? How are they going to know the good news of what you've done unless we go and tell them? How are they going to know the bad news of what is awaiting them unless we reveal it to them. So Lord, help us not to just be content with the fact that we have accepted you and we're good, but that we would recognize there are so many people in our sphere of life, immediate family for many of us, extended family, neighbors, co-workers, people that need to know about who you are and what you've done, need to know about their fate if they don't accept you. So, Lord, give us boldness. Give us a heart for people like you had. As your word says, for God to love the world that he gave his son. Lord, that we would have a love for the world. A love that we would love them enough to share the good news of what you've done, not only for us, but for them as well. Lord, help us to recognize that, as we did with the last parable and this parable, Let's live this life now for eternity. Let's use what we have in this life now to reach people with the gospel, to reach people for eternity. Lord, help us to see our lives, our resources, our wealth, our time, our ministries, our gifts. See them as yours to do with as you please. That it be your will, not ours that we would be good stewards of you, that we'd use what you've given us to serve you, to reach people for you, Lord, that we could see more and more people each and every day go from darkness to light, come to know you and to accept you. Help us, Lord, because we know that it's hard. Sometimes we don't feel like we have the words. Sometimes we're struck with fear. Lord, there's different things that the enemy tries to do to prevent us from sharing the good news of the gospel, but I pray, Lord, that you would help us to overcome those things, that you would give us what we need, that you give us the words to speak, that you enable us with the opportunities to communicate the wonderful news of the gospel to those who don't know it. So be with us this week, Lord. 
I'd love to hear testimonies this week of opportunities that you opened up and times that we were faithful to share and lives that were transformed for all eternity. So be with us, encourage us, challenge us, speak to us, Lord. Most importantly, just help us to change. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as usual, we'd love to spend some time with you, have lunch with you. So if you're able to come, great. But uh, not uh, enjoy your day. <laughs>